0: From Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be trained into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they went to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12, and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and service of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child and my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus
1: Christ. Before I begin today, usually what happens, I go into a mode of interviewing and preaching. But I want to give you a setup in it. Um, Brooke uh, mentioned to me, and he said, I think it would be good if you talk about something. And I thought about it and I go, I'm ashamed of it. I keep that a secret. I'm an open book, but I don't talk about it. And then I and then I prayed about it and he said, if you're gonna lead people out of shame, you gotta release yours. You gotta be open about it. So I'm gonna be moved by the Holy Spirit. If you notice me, I'm jumping around at the beginning of the service because i'm fighting the holy spirit and the thing is what happens the holy spirit wants to move you in a position as a pastor and use your authenticity to move people through their brokenness and through their shame but if you don't move and allow the holy spirit to use your shame then who am i to tell people to release theirs if i don't release mine make sense so let me show you this. I'm going in my preacher mode. You'll see during the sermon what, where it's difficult to talk about, but, but I will act all confident and all this stuff. But I want to show you how the Holy Spirit moved this week, uh, this year. I got a phone call from Rachel. Rachel, why don't you sit right here? Rachel goes, I don't want to get in front, but Rachel, here. Do you remember Rachel? She shared in May her story about cutting herself and going into a hospital. Now, January and February, January, Rachel called me. She lives in Fontana. And she doesn't go to this church. And she goes, I have an idea. Now, we didn't know this idea was being led by the Holy Spirit. And she goes, I want to share my story. And I didn't know her story. And so in May, she came, very articulate, very poised, shared this incredible story. And if you remember, she got a huge standing ovation from you guys. And then she went home. So Debbie, come on. So Deb, you got your mic? Welcome. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't do that for you, Rachel. Yeah, I think it's on. I need to turn it on. Oh, okay. I thought it was in your back. Okay. Okay. There it's on. So Dev comes out to me about a month ago, right? Yeah. Okay, a month ago. (laughs) We have a fun interview. And she says to me, What did you say?
2: I said, Kevin, I'm ready to tell my story, but I need to explain to you why first, because it has a lot to do with you and Rachel.
1: Okay. She says, Your daughter. And I go, I don't have any kids. And she said, Rachel. And you said the reason you wanted to share your story is because of what what Rachel did. Why did it mean so deep? Because you were crying during Rachel's talk. I
2: I think she got to all of us, really. But um, yeah, just the fact that she was able to do it and wanted to share and wanted to help other people who were experiencing that themselves. And I was going through a lot myself. And I knew that if she could do it, then I need to do that. But as I was going through what I was going through, I was trying to take steps. So when I was stronger, and this step doing this, I explained to Kevin that I want to be like Rachel. I want to do that, but I need time to do it. And I, I think maybe now we can talk about it. And then we set up today. Okay. But Rachel was always there, always there.
1: OK. So the story is already, when you share your story, it gives it courage to other people to share because when she said, when Debbie said, "I'm ready to share your story," I'm going, "You're ready to be released from shame. You're ready to be released from shame. That's what you." <laughs> okay, so let's go do back you and. to move over a little bit? Do you, want, you want closer to me? Yeah,
2: I want you closer <laughs> to me because I know how I know how he gets. So.
1: <laughs> I am the biggest baby. And my wife, I'm quoting my wife. (laughs) So anyway, so let's go back. You're having family difficulties, right?
2: I was having family difficulties before that. Um, My husband passed away in 2011, and I didn't get to mourn him properly because then my mom began getting sick. So because I was already disabled and not working, I was spending more time taking care of her, which enabled me to properly mourn with my children for myself, for my husband, and then it just... And from there. Yeah, and
1: your mother is like my mother, she has yeah, dementia. Yeah, she, she
2: had the dementia and, um,
1: and she passed.
2: She was able to be put into a nursing home that was would cater to her the best that we could no longer do. We took care of her for a year and a half, day and night. And that's what led me to be able to come here because I knew she was being taken care of and I could finally start my life here in California with my daughter.
1: Okay. And um, so what, what, what you were saying last night, you were saying, I'm not smart enough
2: well I went through life uh, being the middle child in my family and um, not being very smart not being able to get those A's or even maybe sometimes even a B and that bothered me and then just being short bothered me because all my friends seemed to be taller so these things you just go through life with these little <sighs> things then starting to get a little bit of heaviness or what, like you know just just stuff like that kind of stays there okay. you know I mean people didn't like the way I looked they i was weird looking and i'm like why they didn't like my eyes i was called a dog sometimes you know it's just weird stuff that okay. stays with you
1: it, you're right it does stay with you yeah. the, the titles children give you so you came back here to la um and then one day one night you decided i'm exhausted
2: i can't take no more yeah Have
1: you ever been that way
2: my family, the phone calls, the, the heaviness of the problems. There was this, a problem with my son renting my mom's house. And then he just started not to pay rent. And then my other son wasn't paying rent. And all these phone calls from my six brothers and sisters. Anger, hatred, what are you doing? You're not doing the family thing. You're sicking up for your son. What's wrong with you?
1: Okay. So all this pressure from the families and stuff. So you were on a certain medication for your health. And you went in the cabinet. Mm-hmm.
2: And then what? I decided I wanted to go to sleep. I didn't want another phone call. I just didn't want another phone call of uh, my family just being so upset with me, feeling I didn't do the right thing. But yet, what I did, later on I wrote them a letter and I explained everything, I did do the right thing. I did the thing knowing and feeling my parents with me, and I know what they would have done in this situation. I did that with full knowledge and acceptance that what I did, even though it's all said and done now, I would still do the same thing again. They may not approve. They're thinking of the lawyer part. They're thinking of the part, you should have done this, you should have done that, you should have thrown them in the street. My mother would have never thrown them in the street. She would have worked something out. We would have done something. But I know they would have put them in the street. So now I have no family. Well, just one sister. But through it all, when I came home, it just, just, it was just too much. I had just lost my mom. We just got over that. The holidays, it was too much. I didn't want to tell my family anything because I wanted them to enjoy the holidays uh, that my mother loved and being her first holidays being gone. I couldn't take that away from them. Oh, the boys weren't paying rent. That would have destroyed their holidays. I could not do that.
1: So this family's nuts. So <laughs> let's, let's go to...
2: <laughs> they believe they're right.
1: The, yeah, that's what other people do. But um, when you decided you took these muscle relaxers.
2: Yeah, I went to my cabinet and I said, you know what? I don't want that phone to ring again. I just think I want to sleep. I don't want to curl up in my bed. I, I love my bed. I just want to sleep right now. I don't want no more phone calls. I don't want to think. I don't want this on my brain 24 hours a day no more. So I took 44 muscle relaxers. I took two-and-a-half Xanax, because that was, that was my pill that I've had anxiety for years. So I figured, well, that will help me sleep real nice. And so I wrote my daughter a letter, but I wasn't thinking of what I was doing to my daughter. I just wrote her a letter explaining everything, just, like, all the little things in my life that bothered me, just that she would get a better picture of me that maybe perhaps she didn't ever know. And um,
1: so what was I wasn't
2: it? real. I was in, like, a bubble. Yeah. I wasn't real. It was I was empty.
1: So, because I asked you, I go, did you say you were going to do this? Did you threaten it? Did you tell your daughter prior? She said within two and a half hours, I just made the decision, didn't tell anyone, and then, then.
2: He was so shocked. He says, "What do you mean? Like months and days?" Yeah, I. I I, Because usually
1: when people want to commit suicide, there's signs. There was no sign with this girl.
2: I mean, my daughter knew the pressure I was yeah. under, but it, it was just like I, I became hollow. I actually was just like empty. And there was this seemingly like bubble around me that I needed to just sleep, to just sleep, yeah. to not get another phone call, not to get another angry person yelling at me and just just that rest in my bed that I love. That's all I wanted to do, and I knew I would get that. I knew... I would get that. Right. But I did write my daughter a letter. Yeah.
1: So then we, we don't know the time thing. Well, but my, all my daughter figured
2: out that it was the, the night before she found me, is when I took the medicine. And um, my sister called her saying, I can't get a hold of your, your mom. And then she said, Yeah, me too. So she left work. And that was in the afternoon. So it was like nighttime to the afternoon. And I was just on the floor by the bathroom. And, of and course, so she's yelling your, your at me.
1: your daughter, she's yelling, I would too. But anyway, your daughter's yelling at you. And she's yelling, throw up, throw up.
2: Well, first she says, Mom, what's the matter with you? Mom, what's the matter with you? And I, I went to get up, and I obviously had no muscles to do it. And I just looked at her, and I said, I took 24 pounds. And she's like, throw up. Get this. She got the bucket. She's going, throw, you throw up. I'm like, I can't. And I don't know anything else. Okay. I don't. I don't know anything else. She just told me that I had to pee, and I wouldn't let the ambulance take me until I went into the bathroom and peed.
1: Okay, so you went to the hospital, mm-hmm. and they were shocked because there was no heart damage.
2: They took so many tests. I didn't know that, but I know now. They took so many tests because they just expected my heart to stop because it was so relaxed, okay. my muscles to give out, just just things to happen. You're. you're Your vitals, just everything needed to just relax because that's what I had done was relax everything. And I was good, I was powerful. My daughter came to see me the next day, I was up having breakfast.
1: But then during breakfast or during that day, the doctors told you that you need to go to the mental hospital.
2: Yeah, and then you
1: looked at your daughter and she said, You need to go.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was feeling great. I mean, I knew I was better. I knew I was going to have another issue as long as I lived. I was given another life. I was doing great. And then they say, well, we're getting ready to move you. I'm like, move me where? And they're like, to the facility. And I looked at my daughter. I said, a facility? And I started to tear up. And she just looked at me. And she said, you need to go, Mom. And I said, well, you say I need to go. I, I go. I, I need to go. Okay. And I went. It wasn't nice.
1: No, it, it wasn't nice. But you learned a lot from that.
2: I about, say it do you, what, you talk yeah. about the
1: score in the circle.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they teach you so much. And, and, and Rachel, she explained to us that she went through the same thing. And, and what they do, right, they just, they just built you up again. Hmm. They, they just gave you little projects, just little thing, color of flower. You know, like, so when you color something, what do you want to do? You want to stay in the lines. You want to make it pretty. You want to make you want a, a piece of art. And then they would go into other things, like you have this square, and yet we have circles. And why do we want to get stuck in a square where we have, that, we have that chance of getting stuck in this corner, get stuck in that corner? And if you live in a circle, there's no corners to get stuck in. You just go around it as you can. But you don't need to be stuck anywhere. You can take your time. It can be a slow procedure if that's what you need. It could be a little quicker from one point to another, but the circle of life itself, we don't need to get stuck in corners. And that is the thing that I brought out from me that I I will never forget, that fact. Because that's strong, that's major stuff.
1: So when were you released?
2: Uh, I was released three days later. But I want you to know that this facility uh, was a lockdown facility. If you went out to the courtyard, you were surrounded by high, high fences and cages and things. You were locked into a door, you were left out to a door, you were constantly watched, constantly, even if you had a 15 minute break and you laid on your bed. They went by, if you were in the shower, they knocked on the door, they knew your voice. They knew if that was you in there or if that was somebody else. So you were constantly being watched, and I'll tell you what, it wasn't an aggravating thing, it was a great thing. It was, right? It was a great thing because (laughs) You just knew they were really there to help you get on your feet again. And as you saw that doctor every morning, that doctor really wanted to know, where are you at? What are you doing? What are you thinking?
1: So when, when we moved, you got out. Now your life, because if you know Debbie, you've been going to the for two and a half years. Yeah. In the beginning of the year, you noticed a joy in her that she started smiling She started being more social, she started being stuff, so what Healthier, no
2: cane, no, you know- Yeah,
1: because not only emotional healing, but it helped you physical healing as well.
2: Everything, everything. When, When you feel, when you let go of 20 pounds of heaviness, of guilt, of, of just, oh, God, this, she said this, this, she, that. I, I, you know When you let go of that and when you realize, I don't really need that person in my life, whether it be family or not, okay? That's the key. Whether it be family or not, blood or not, if you don't need them in your family and your life and they're not doing anything great for you, see you later. <laughs> because that's what you do to friends. <laughs> just because we're blood... Sorry. You don't res- You know who I am, but you don't respect me. You no longer remember who I am, then I'm sorry. See you later. And I basically told my sister, you're out of my life.
1: So one of the things is, and I want to end this, and I thought this was powerful because one of the questions last night yeah. was how do you begin the mornings now compared to then? When you get up in the morning, is it another sermon to get ready for. No, I'm kidding. What what is it now?
2: Well, I've always been a very religious person, which is even odder for when that happened, but I believe the angels just comforted me in my bed and saved me all the way around for my new life. But I always was a person who helped people, and that was always a joy for me. I can't live if I don't help, and that's something we all need to consider doing for our lives. But I would get up and say my prayers and I would be saying, thank you God for another day, you know. Now I get up, I have this beautiful picture of Jesus and my prayers are thank you God for another day, a new day and thank you for my new life because I am now living a life of happiness. I have a happy face, I have a happy face pillow. I have a wonderful therapist that I'm graduating six months earlier, Tuesday because I've come that far and I've worked that far. And I am renewed. I'm a new person. I am just wonderfully happy. I'm just so happy. I don't even know how to tell you people how happy it is. Rachel, I know I know. I know that you gave me the strength and I know that you went through the, the same things. And I, I am very, um, I see things and I make things be a matter to me. And I'm a jewelry lover. And Rachel, I would like to, st- to give this to you. It's sterling silver with some black in it. That's our lives, right? Black with some sterling silver. But there's gold. And she's made it to the golden point in her life. And so have I. So we are having bracelets together because we made it through. And...
1: Thank you. you Thank you. He want to shut off. This baby off? Yeah, he shut this baby off. Okay, I'm emotionally okay. drained. <laughs> no, oh, sorry. Thank you. you. Stories connect stories, don't they? <clears throat> A few weeks ago, I was telling you guys that I, I need to have open heart surgery. And uh, that I went to the doctor, and they said, let's monitor it for a while. And I don't know if you've ever been in the position where you're just going, you know what? This is not fair. And then what is interesting, uh, when I told you a week after that, I had severe back spasm, and then I had uh, morphine, which is great, and um, so I could walk again. But last week, I, I, was, I was like all excited that I had six hours with no pain in my body. Now, this is when you know you're getting older, when you're just six hours, man, six hours. I got no pain. And then I told my wife, Jennifer, in the morning, I go, my jaw's hurting for some reason. And she goes, did you go to the dentist? I go, no, it's way up here somewhere. It's not my tooth. And so she called me on the way home, and she said, did you go to the doctor? And I go, Ah. Oh. So I called the dentist and I, and I said, you know, I'm having to she goes, let me do a x-ray on it. And he's, you know, and the doctor, when they go, ooh, it's not a sound you want to hear. <laughs> she said, she said, you got a severe infection in your gum there that's caused by a root canal that was done years ago. But she said with your congenital heart valve disease that when you have an infection, it will start to cause the, that little small valve that's barely working now to be infected. So she goes, let's schedule you for emergency oral surgery for Friday morning. Great. Sure. <laughs> so I took Lyft, and I don't know if you've ever got this thing, but I miss my mom. I did, and there's a picture of her when, when she was healthy. I didn't want to be an adult. I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't want to be in charge of anything. I just wanted to put my head in my mom's lap. Now, I know all of us have gone through this. All of us have been there, and all of us done this. And I and I think about this, and I go, come on, what would mom say? And the thing is, God has given us, us this incredible imagination, incredible memory that we can smell our moms, we can remember exactly how our moms would feel and what they would say. My mom always said this, and I put it on the screen. She would tell me, Kevin, life isn't fair. Basically, what she was telling me was, Life is hard. It's difficult at times. There's times in life you're not going to feel that you're going to get a break. There's times that you want to say, well, can we stop for a minute? My biggest fantasy in the world, if I could stop the rotation of the planet for a week and just be left alone. We we'll all go there. When Jennifer and I, and I, I got a kick out of this, when you have disabilities, it's a road that you don't want to go down with learning disabilities and vertical and horizontal tremors in your hands that causes back spasms, that causes severe arthritis in your back. And then when uh, I went to Sudan with my wife, and, and we were starting an orphanage, and these are three orphans that knew how to keep themselves alive because the, the, the bad people, We're machine gunning this whole village, and these three children knew exactly how to position their body to look like it's dead. And they did it for hours. And I go, oh my goodness, they know about suffering. See, if you look on the screen, I wrote this. Life really is hard for the Sudanese people, but their life is close to what most people in the world experience. Americans, are, on the whole, don't suffer in the same way that most of the world's population suffers. See, these children smiled a lot. We never saw these children cry. We never saw these children being spoiled. We never saw these children be, being um, uh, bullied. By comparison, when we look in American, and, and when I got back from Sudan and I saw this... Junior high, having a fit because his mother took away the phone. I was going, "Oh, you need to go to Sudan with me, kid. <laughs> you really do." I think our gospel reading is I'm, I, does this comparison with American culture and and the Sudanese culture, and I think the gospel reading is awesome here because on the screen it says Jesus clearly presents two roads which he can choose to travel. The road of suffering or the road to greatness. One road is real and the other is an illusion that causes needless pain. So Jesus tells us and tells his disciples, This is the road I'm going to go on. And I'm not going to go on the road to greatness. I'm going on the road to suffering. And so he says this in Mark chapter 9 For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man will be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after, after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask. So Jesus clearly made it clear, this is the road that I'm choosing to go on. See, if you're back on the screen, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. That title means the human one. And whenever Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he, uh, uh, he is saying that he is one of us. And to be one of us, he had to enter fully into the reality of our human situation, which that life is hard. It's painful. And the ironic thing here is that Jesus fully embraces the suffering of humanity while his disciples were really clear in trying to escape. They didn't want to go through this stuff. Forget this. They had a whole different idea from Messiah. And so it's interesting. If you look at Scripture, they made it clear. They had no idea what he was talking about, and they didn't want to ask him. That's the perfect analogy for denial. You're living in your own little American bubble. And so we live in denial here. And the reason I think they were doing, they were afraid. So the thing is, this is funny to me, because I've always told you the Word of God cracks me up. So what these knucklehead disciples are doing on this journey on the road, they're arguing with each other. Not how to serve But who is the greatest? That's what cracks me up about this scripture. In fact, I wrote, the disciples chose another road. While Jesus talked about embracing the reality of human suffering, his disciples avoided it by having an argument about which one of them was the greatest. And the thing is, I look at the word of God and I go, this could be written about a year and a half ago. Because we are so saturated in our American culture about being great. About everything that needs to be great. You need to be great. I need to be great. We're all great. And so therefore we we don't understand. So we go from the political system about greatness and watch them fight. And all of a sudden argue about this. On which party is greater. And they're trying to win. And this is what I've learned about greatness. And I wrote on the screen. When we are obsessed with greatness, it becomes a black hole. Our joy and happiness are always tied to future and more, the future of more power, money, things, success, degrees, health, status, and popularity. But when we reach any of our goals, we find out that it doesn't really bring us true joy. So we just set up more goals for greatness, and we keep chasing after something that we can't ever seem to catch up to. You know, the suicide rate among the Sudanese is zero. Because they have embraced, they've embraced the road to suffering. Because we often, on the road to greatness, instead, we realize that it's really a road to disappointment and brokenness. The road to greatness always disappoints because it never delivers the satisfaction we think it should deliver. Now, Jesus basically talks about children. Because he asked the disciples, what are you arguing about? They wouldn't say. So he goes, okay, we're going to make this a teaching experience. You think you're great? Let's sit in a circle. And this is what happened. He sat down, called the 12, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first, or whoever wants to be great, must be last, and all, and servant of all took a little child and put it among them and taking it in his arms he said to them whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me but the one who sent me good night is that not the opposite of what our society says greatness is He said, you're going after these brokers because if you want to know a human being that wasn't valued in that society, we're children. So he grabbed a child that was the least value, and he said, this is what our society then devalues so much. This is what I'm here for, this child. This is the opposite. Now, we know children can be bratty. We know children can, you know, want their own ways and stuff like this. But they don't understand to be rich and famous they don't understand to chase you should see a child's dream is much different than our society says their dreams should be see this is what drives me nuts the people that chase for that are chasing for greatness become our leaders you notice that even within the church Even with a religious institution or politician, what we do is we want a pastor that's perfect. We want a CEO that has those Photoshop pictures of looking perfect, right? And we go like this, and they go, this is what I need to be in order to be successful. This is what I need to look like. Look at our Facebooks. We're projecting something that we're really not sometimes because we're projecting that we have a great life. And everything's great and perfect. And it could be at that moment. And so this is where I want to start sharing my heart. Because even in denominations, it was interesting. About a year and a half ago, I had a big wig in our denomination. And our denomination has poster children. Or it's adults that are poster adults. That this is what Free Methodist is. And so, he came up to me and and basically wanted to groom me for superintendency. That's a big thing. That's great. So, he goes, Kevin, do you have your masters? And shame kicked in. Let me go back to 1991. In 1991, I was working with a gentleman named Jim Ogan. Remember I told you Jim Ogan has cancer and he's dying? He wanted to say goodbye to me, and I said goodbye to him three weeks ago. I worked under his leadership, and he says, Kevin, you must have some kind of disability or you're really school lazy. So he forced me to get working on my disability, to get tested. And so after three or four days of testing, of drawing, of doing this, of comprehension and all this, I sat here and he sat there and the doctors come out and he said, he goes, well, Kevin, he's very intelligent, socially adaptable, he can talk, but he has a disability where he can't learn traditional ways. He has a seventh grade reading level, and eighth grade comprehension level. And we're going to suggest two things. A, that we can get funding for a trade school, that he would work in a factory, or B, he can be on full disability. I just looked down and just shame kicked in. I wasn't great. I didn't have what the world told me I should have. And Jim Ogan said this. He placed his hand, and he says, we're going to figure this out. So he designed three men, and he wrote a whole ordination process based on my disabilities and based on a way that I can learn that was four years with these four men. They taught me how to speak as best as I can. They told me how to read. If you look at my sermons, they're all color coded because colors stimulate my mind. So I can read when it's blue. I can't read when it's not. It's really interesting the ways you learn how to compensate. And so I've learned everyone goes on this path but there's a suffering journey that I did not choose, that I've been fighting all my life not to be on. And so what's amazing that I'm here at 4.30 every Sunday morning, practicing exactly what I'm going to say to try to get it out. Somebody asked me about my, what I do on Sunday morning, and I go, I beg that the Lord, that the Holy Spirit will fill me so I can make sense. And so back to the superintendency. I said, Do you know how I was ordained? He goes, No. And you know what? My file's sealed. I don't share this. And I told him. And he goes, Okay. And he never brought it up again. That's the shame that our perfect great people are looking for. When you're like me with disabilities, or you're like you with somebody with a past, or you don't look a certain way. There's shame in your life. And so this is where I had to learn. This is where I have the advantage of being disabled. It's on the screen. We can spend our lives trying to be great and suffer needlessly, or we can embrace our suffering and associate ourselves with the pain of the world. And in so doing, we find joy of living the real life Will we choose a road that puts us into a solidarity and communion with the overwhelming suffering of others. Or like the disciples who argued about who was the greatest, will choose a road that is really about nothing in the grand schemes of things. So I have a challenge for all of us. Watch the news. 90% of it, it's about being great. It's about being number one. It's about tweeting or cutting someone down or making fun of somebody's ability or disability. See, back on the screen, if we want a rich life of significance, we want to stop striving to be significant. Like Jesus, we are simply invited to take up the cross that life presents to us. It is then that we stop running from our lives and begin to live them, If we start with the understanding that life is hard, then everything that comes our way is an opportunity to grow in patience and grace and wisdom and most of all, love. That is when we will have something real to offer this world. True greatness is humility. And only the humble can truly serve in love. A year ago, I had the privilege of speaking out of disability at Azusa Pacific University at the master's program. (laughs) (laughs) That got me a kick, (laughs) okay? (laughs) So there I am, trying to look sophisticated, (laughs) trying to fit in to the highly educated people. (laughs) That was a joke after I finished speaking, there was a line of people who wanted to talk to me. They're all in wheelchairs. They're all broken. They all gone through suffering of choosing the next one. They didn't choose this. They wanted me. I, I said there was one time in my life I served communion in the 38 years of ministry. One time but it's so hard to get that thing on. So as we approach communion today, <coughs> communion was always a reminder when I was a child. I wasn't good enough. And during communion, I would walk out because I didn't have a steady hand. I, don't, I served communion once. This is a hard contraption to put on. But I ask two gentlemen, while Pastor Reuben prepares us with the short liturgy, two gentlemen that I think that have gone through tremendous unjust suffering themselves. I want them to put it on me. You see, because Jesus connects to the broken. If you're great, you're on your own because you think you're great. People say to me, Kevin, I don't see the disabilities. It's like telling a black person, I don't see your color. You're saying you don't see my suffering. That's what you're telling me. It's like if I change the pigment of my skin for one week, I get a whole nother perspective. And you change your disabilities in me, what I have, it'll change real quick. But I'm simply being obedient. God calls the foolish things of this world, the poster child here, to shame the wise of this world. This is why we're recalibrating. This is why we're restored in order to restore. And so. Uh, pastor Ruben, if you can do the liturgy the two gentlemen i love both of you if you can help me put this i only got 38 so if you want me to serve communion this is once in a decade (laughs) but i i do want to say it when you pray that you will be released from the shame and the brokenness that's my prayer for you if you come to me